The diversity in this church is unbelievable. It really is. It doesn't always run smooth, does it? But, but, I love the diversity here. You know, I can say this because Morris said it. We had the oldies up here this morning and we were blessed by them. We've had the young, the young people in the youth group up here and we're blessed by them. A little bit harder on the hearing, but still blessed, alright? It's a great place, isn't it? Because we are the Lord's people. We're a family. Amen. You know, families uh, sometimes struggle to be harmonious all the time. Yeah? yeah that's alright. We're still family. Now, that's, that's my segue, you see. Josh was supposed to come up and, and just give you a little uh, preview of what's happening next week and the weeks after, but he's called away on family duties up to Ballarat. So remember him and uh, Rachel in your prayers as they travel to and from. But what Josh was going to explain to you is that this week is the last week of um, this current series that we're doing, uh, The Obedient Disciple, in the book of John and from next week on for the next six weeks we're going to continue in the book of John but we're going to look at the cost of the disciple of Jesus Christ and I don't know if you've noticed this as we've been going through John we've been using Jesus Christ the Son of God as our example in the things that we're teaching we we started off didn't we by saying that we need to bless how? Like Jesus blessed. In this upper room discourse that we've been going through over the last eight or nine weeks, we've been looking at the teaching that Jesus has given to his disciples. But there's more than that, you know. Have you noticed how he, he lived out that, that teaching himself? He was an example. And the Lord asked us to take up our cross and follow him. And in the next six weeks, we're going to look at how he did that. And we hope to learn heaps from his example. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, because in the, in the next six weeks, we're going to focus on the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord standing before Pilate, the whipping, the scourging, the spitting, the nailing to the cross, all that. You don't often get a chance to really focus on that, do we? Sometimes at Easter you get to hear a little bit about it, but we're going to take some time over the next six weeks to really look at that and see the cost of your salvation and mine. Hope, hope you come and I hope you enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. Now for the message proper. When I was a little boy, a bit like you, a little bit older, in primary school, probably grade three, four, which makes me about eight or nine, I learnt something. I still haven't learned how to work this. Not working. Is it working? Why is it not working? I'm, pre- I'm pressing it. Anyway. Could I get the next slide, please, uh, Blake? I learned something. I learned that, thank you, I learned that, that, that trouble comes in three flavours. 
degrees, aspects. Now, I wasn't a bad student. I only went to the principal's office once for chasing girls. (laughs) I know, I know. But I did learn about trouble in primary school. I really did. I learned that it came in three flavours. Trouble... Big trouble, and then really big trouble. I'm going to explain that very shortly. What I learned. Next one, thank you. I learned that I got into trouble for not eating my lunch. Mum would say, "Make sure you eat your lunch." If I didn't eat my lunch, I was in trouble. Big trouble was forgetting to throw my lunch away and bringing my lunch home. Big trouble. And really big trouble was when mum found my lunch on Sunday night when she was making my lunch for Monday morning. Oh man, big trouble. Big trouble. And as an adult, I'm nearly 60 now, I've discovered that adult life is much like that. That's how trouble comes into my life now. Trouble, big trouble, and really big trouble. I don't know if you've noticed that too. It comes in degrees. And Jesus Christ states in verse 33 of this passage that June has read so well for us, in this world you will have trouble. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes because I need to finish off the other verse. That's the very last verse, isn't it, in the passage. So we're going to take a few minutes to go through um, verses 29 to 30, 30, uh, 31, rather. And this is a a section that concludes the upper room discourse, the upper room ministry, the farewell ministry. Lots of theologians and people like that give it a whole heap of names and titles. But it's the end of that time where the Lord was in the upper room, as Rob reminded us so well this morning, where he was there with his disciples and he was telling them of what was going to happen in the next few hours, the next few days. This is the end of it, the summing up. And 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 I'd like you to have your Bibles open, if you wouldn't mind. Um, It says there that that in verse 29, disciples said, now we understand exactly what you're saying. We know it all. Yep, yep, we've got it, Lord. We understand. The fact was that in a few hours, all that understanding, all that confidence, all that supposed assurance that they had about what they thought they understood was going to be put to the test, wasn't it? And what happened? A miserable failure, every single one of them. They claimed to understand what the Lord had been teaching them, but the Lord knew better, didn't he? He knew better. The Lord knew that they weren't as strong and as sure as they claimed. And he tried to give that clue, didn't he, to them. He gave them a warning from the Lord in verse 31 that he said, you know, soon you're going to be scattered. You're going to be confused. You're going to be isolated. You're going to desert me. 
harsh things, isn't it, at the end of that nice supper that they've been having with the Lord. All those things they were talking about, all those positive things. Some observations of those uh, few verses. The first one is the Lord was very sceptical, wasn't he, of the firmness of the disciples of their faith. But the thing that I saw in this little passage was that he did nothing about it. Did you notice that? He did nothing about his knowledge that their faith was actually quite weak, quite fragile, shaky at best. Does that that strike you as odd? He also knew of their impending failure. But I want you to know, know this for a fact, brothers and sisters. He didn't cause that failure. He didn't cause it. In fact, he warned them. There was an opportunity, wasn't it, for them to take stock. In fact, he'd warned Peter much earlier what was going to happen at that fire, wasn't he? Didn't he? You see, a lot of people ask, don't they? They say, why doesn't the Lord do something about those things? How could he let it happen? Why did he let it happen? Why did the Lord cause it? You know, being omniscient, that's the right one, isn't it? Knowing everything doesn't mean he causes everything. The Lord knew what was going to happen, absolutely. But he did nothing about it. He didn't interfere. Why? Responsibility, choice, a whole heap of reasons. That's that's an interesting observation, isn't it? And all through the discourse in that upper room, that's what the Lord was doing, giving them warnings, giving them the information that they needed to live well as a Christian, to be strong, to to stand firm, to not waver. I've been sharing a a little passage in, uh, in 1 Samuel with a few people this week. And I love, and I love the little bit where it talks about in in chapter 8 where, where God, it says there that God gave the nation of Israel a solemn warning of what was about to happen. He didn't stop what was going to happen. He said, this is what will happen if you keep going down this path. And he made it very clear. People chose what they chose. The things happened because of the choices that people made. Absolutely, God could have intervened. He could have stopped everything from happening. He could have made things happen differently. But he chose not to. That's sovereignty. The next thing that I noticed, uh, an observation in this one, in this uh, little passage, Verse 32. This upset me when I, when I discovered this. The Lord is disappointed. He says, you will leave me all alone. I want you to think about that for a minute. This is the Lord speaking. He says, you will leave me all alone. He could have phrased that in a hundred different ways. You will leave me. You will desert me. You will forsake me. This, this, is, this is personal and it's emotional. The Lord reveals his disappointment. 
in that little sentence, I, I can feel the emotional distress of the Lord Jesus. Can you feel that when you read that? He's, look, look what it says. He says, he says, you will leave me all alone. This is, this is, this is about nearly three and a half years when these blokes have been, you know, going around all over the place, Jerusalem, Samaria, everywhere, doing stuff together, watching miracles, you know, eating, sleeping, all that fishing, all that stuff. They were close. You're going to leave me all alone. And, you know, the Lord knew what was coming up. He knew what was up ahead. I want you to remember this, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, although he was the Son of God, we, we touched on that, didn't we, at the very start of John, God manifesting flesh, absolutely. But he also was 100% human. 100% human. Fully man, fully God. He felt. He understood. That's why we have a high priest that can be touched by our infirmities. That's what it says. Our sufferings, our troubles, our anxieties, our stress. He knows what it's like. You left me all alone. Now, I know that each of us have, have experienced that to some degree, at least once in our lives. It's not a good feeling, is it? To, be, to feel all alone. Not a good feeling. As, a, as being fully man, the Lord Jesus was expecting support and sympathy from these imperfect men. That's what he was expecting. These men meant a lot to him. He loved them. He chose them himself to, to start off this wonderful work that we are, we are recipients of. To spread the gospel, to start the New Testament church, to make known the kingdom of God. These men meant a lot to him and they left him all alone. You know, I often wonder, brothers, you know, we're now when the Lord says, and somebody mentioned it this, this morning, I think, I think it was um, you, Bob, I can't, maybe it wasn't, where it says, where the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. They're not just words off the tongue. They're not cliches. The Lord knew what those words meant, what that phrase meant. He says, I won't leave you all alone. I won't desert you. I'll be there right beside you every step of the way. He spoke from experience. He didn't read it in a book. He lived it. And so he promises me and he promises you, I will never leave you alone. I'll never desert you. Amen. I often wonder as, as the Lord looks down from heaven at us, at me, as he looks down, is there, is there disappointment in his heart like there was that day? When he looks down at us here at Montmorency this morning, tomorrow, next week. You know, you and I, 
We mean a lot to the Lord, just as those disciples. We're the same disciples. There's no class of disciples. We're all disciples. We, re, we, we get that very clear in chapter 17 when the Lord prays for, for the disciples that were there with him then and for the ones that were to follow in Montmorency, you and me. We meant a lot to him. Do we please him? Do we really please him? When he looks down, it bothers me that when he looks down at me, more often than not, there's probably not a smile on his face. He's probably looking down at us and going, it bothers me. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 9, it says there that it is my goal to please him. My goal is to please the Lord. In Colossians 1 and 10, it says there, this is the charge to the Christian, to me and to you, so that you live life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. When he looks down, am I doing this? Is there disappointment in my Lord's heart? Ephesians 5, 9 and 10, it says this. It says, to live as children of light. I hope we can do this. But it goes on and says, and find out what pleases the Lord and do it. When he looks down, is he finding me doing the things that please him? Like I said, these are just observations and, 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 they, and they bother me. This, this really touched me when I, was, when I was preparing this. And then at the very end of, of uh, this little passage, when the Lord is deserted, we discover that he has this, this unique resource. He says there, yet I am not alone. For my Father is with me. The chief resource of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our example is the Father in heaven. The, it was from, from the Father he drew the strength to go on the next day and to go on to Calvary and to lay on that cross and to allow his hands and feet to be nailed to it. The purpose that he had, he drew the strength for that to fulfil it through his Father and the power to execute it came from the Father as well. So we come up to the next slide. In verse 30, we get to verse 33 finally. It says there, I have told you these things. What things? Next one. Very, very quick recap of what we've been looking at. The first, the first uh, instalment was Christ's love. Always great to start with the love of God, with Christ's love. And that's how the, uh, the upper room ministry started, with a display of Christ's love. And we saw that example given to us in, in the washing of the feet in chapter 13. The second thing he spoke about was heaven in chapter 14, 1 to 15. And I loved, I, loved, I don't know if you really appreciated what was said there about that, but the Lord was explaining to them 
that, that there is a personal place for his followers. You know, like you've got your name. You've got your name on a spot in heaven. It's personalised. That's something totally new for these people and something that we, we don't rejoice in enough, brothers and sisters. I have a name, I have a spot reserved with my name on it in heaven. I hope all of us have that. And it's guaranteed. The Lord guarantees it. You know? He says, I will prepare a place for you. Loved, I loved that. I, I loved hearing that again. In, in the third thing was he talked about the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 16 to the end there. Uh, he says that it's with a new thing, the indwelling of the Spirit, which was the, the power to live out that faith, the way they were to draw the strength, the comfort. The Spirit was to give them these special gifts. And then there was the walk, wasn't it? The work, sorry, the mission that they had. They were going to bear fruit and glorify God. And then last week, Josh talked about prayer, the powerhouse, the access to God, to God's unlimited resources. How good's all that? He says, I've told you these things. And today is the, is the, we're going to look at the last thing he mentions to them was the victory, the victory over death, the victory over Satan, the victory over the bondage of sin. And why? Why did he tell them these things? It's, it's very clear there, isn't it? So you may have peace. Everyone wants peace. The world's crying out for it. But it's, this, is not a bit, this is not the peace of, 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 of war and, and conflict and strife. It's not that. An old Scottish preacher, George H. Morrison, says, Peace, in this, in, when he was talking about this uh, passage, peace is the, pros, is, is the, is the oh, possession... Oh, I spelt that wrong, sorry. It's the possession of adequate resources to live out your Christian life. In Christ, we have all the resources that we need, all the adequate resources that we need. And I had a really good example to show that. I'm going to tell you very quickly. I've got a woodshed at home. That's, that's, that's good, Raph, you've got a woodshed. We've got a fire at home. Uh, we love our fight, our home group. There's, all, there's these two ladies, I'm telling you this, I can tell you this because one of them's not here, the chief offender. They get there very early to get the two seats in front of the fire in the winter. <laughs> the fire's low, we love it, Paul and I. We love sitting, it really makes us very cosy, makes us very feel very warm, very secure. But I was running out of wood this year. I had to buy some wood. I bought two tonne of wood. It's a lot of wood. And over the last few weeks, I've been putting it into the woodshed. It's all in. Uh, and I stood there at the door of the woodshed, and all, all this red gum, all beautifully stacked. Over here is the wood that I use for kindling, and over there there's three, three pl- black plastic boxes full of chopped up kindling ready to go. And as I stood at that door, I thought, oh, that feeling of, of I'm right for the winter. It doesn't matter how cold it is, it doesn't matter how long it is, I'm right. And it's trivial, I know, I know. But that's what I was thinking about. The adequate resources of God, the peace that you have. 
I'm not fretting about the winter. I'm not fretting about running out of wood. I've got plenty of wood. And this is what the Lord says. The things that I have told you, these are the adequate resources that you need to have peace as you go out into the world. You don't need anything else. You can stand at the door, so to speak, of the woodshed and think, I'm right. I'm good to go. That's what the Lord meant. Peace doesn't depend, brothers and sisters, on material things. It doesn't. This peace depends on our relationship with God, a spiritual relationship. It requires, it depends on our obedience, as we read, didn't we? We read about that. The Lord talked about that in the upper room, our obedience. He said, if you love me, what? Keep my commands and there will be peace and joy. We also learnt that it required a closeness, an intimacy with Christ. Abide in me, remain in me, he said. Made it very clear, didn't he? They're also warnings, aren't they? Don't do those things. We're going to struggle. Which brings us finally to the part we're supposed to talk about. In this world, you will have trouble. Keep going, thank you. The word trouble in EIV comes from the Greek word. I'm even, not even going to try. I've been trying all day yesterday to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it. But nevertheless, it means a grievous affliction or distress. The Greek word. So trouble really doesn't give us the full, because in other, uh, other places, tribulation, which is the next one, thank you. Tribulation means grievous trouble, severe trial or experience. And Quite a lot of other versions of the Bible, the King James, the ASAV, the, the ESV, the NSA, NS, NASA and the Derby Trans, they all use the word tribulation there where it says has trouble. It's interesting that the Living Translation, a lot of people read that, they used one, two, three, four words to describe what the Lord's talking about. They say many trials and sorrows. In this world, you'll have many trials and sorrows. And in the Aramaic Bible, in plain English, uh, why bother bringing that up, right? Because that's the language that it was written in, Aramaic Greek. They take the word trouble out. They leave up, they don't, they don't use tribulation, they use the word suffering. Got that? The Lord says, in this world, you will have suffering so who's going to sign up for that Hmm? and let's make it really clear that when the Lord talks about the world the Greek word there is is cosmos I can say that one means pertaining to the material universe earth and its inhabitants so it's out there right it's where we go tomorrow it's where we work it's where we live where we play sport whatever the things that we do that's what it's talking about and, and, and I want you to realise that the Lord says there, it's at the very top of the, the slide there, in this world, you may have trouble, perhaps you... No, it's emphatic. You will have trouble. It's almost a promise. It's, it's definitely an assurance, isn't it? It's an expectation. It's an expectation that we, ha- we are going to have trouble. And why? Why are we going to have trouble? It will happen, but Why? Aren't we nice? Aren't we caring? Aren't we loving? Why is it going to happen? 
Why should it happen? First of all, because of our relationship with the Lord. In chapter 15, he reminded us, and we looked at that, didn't we? What did he say? They hate me. They hate me. And he says, they'll hate you too. Because you, you belong to me. So it doesn't matter how nice you are to these people. When you go out in the world, it doesn't matter how nice you are. You tell them you belong to Jesus, they'll hate you. The other th- reason is that because... because as, as we go out into the world, which is dominated by, by, by satanic influences and, and controlled by Satan, Satan wants to overcome. Overcome means defeat. He wants to defeat us. He wanted to do that with the Lord. Failed. But he tried very hard. You want to, you, Satan wants to defeat the believer, defeat the Christian. Brothers and sisters, we are at war, a spiritual war. And the Bible makes it very clear, we have an enemy. The world is trying to overcome us. And if they can't do that, they're seeking to conform us into their mould, squeezed into their mould. The world does not want you to be different. Now, it's all about individual rights. Rubbish. Ask your employer tomorrow morning if you can have your quiet time at work. Try that. See how you go. Ask, ask your employer if you could, you could just uh, hand out a little tract. See how you go. Political correctness, brothers and sisters, is our greatest threat at the moment, today, right today. Political correctness is going to stop us. It's a real threat to us living our Christian life. I'm just going to take a few minutes to ask you this question. Can I have the next slide, please? How was your week? I should have said that at the start. What a stupid place. No, I want to ask you, how was your, your week as a Christian? How was it? As a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, how was your week? Did you experience any trouble this week because of your faith? Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Did you? Not this week? What about last week? Did you experience any trouble last week? Well, the week before, or last month maybe? Recently? This year? Why do I ask that? In primary school, when I learned about trouble, I discovered not only that there's a trouble, big trouble and really big trouble, but I also discovered that I brought all those three troubles onto myself. You know, my behaviour brought trouble to me it wasn't my lunch I would have liked to have blamed my it wasn't my lunch, it was me my actions my behaviour caused me to get into trouble trouble and times of deep sorrow were inflicted upon me by my mother because of my behaviour well, because of my non-compliance to her requests of Raf, eat your lunch that's very simplistic but I hope it drives the point home that what we do 
brings brings trouble to us. All sorts of trouble. If we're experiencing tribulation, persecution, as as the Lord talks about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, then you are living out your faith. You are like Christ. You are. You're Christ-like. You're living out your faith. And the world will hate you for it. It will. Just like they hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't popular. What did he do to be hated? Oh, he made blind people see. Oh, he made lame people walk. Oh, he cured people of incurable diseases. Let's hate him for that. Come on. Why did they hate him? The world, if if you're experiencing tribulation and persecution, the world will be actively working to eliminate you or your influence at the very least. And brothers and sisters, here's the cruncher. The reverse is true. The reverse is true. No trouble, no persecution in your life. What is it telling you? What is it telling me? Now, don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus is not saying to go out there and and cause trouble. Can I have the next bit? Thank you. The gospel is offensive to the world. You tell them of the love of God and the provision that God has, has made for their sin through his son and see the reception that you get. They won't gladly receive the word, as, as we have read in many t- places in scripture. Most people don't accept it. They find it offensive. Jesus Christ was despised among the people of his world, of his time. His very, his very countrymen, his followers are still being persecuted today. Up there on the screen, you'll see a report from the uh, non-government organisation Open Doors. It was, a two, it was last year's report. 322 Christians killed each month. Now, brothers and sisters, these are actual confirmed reports. There's a whole heap, whole heap more, possibly, but these are actually confirmed reports. That's 3,864 brothers and sisters in Christ in glory this morning. It's a lot more people that, that died in 9-11. Not minimising now, I'm just trying to put it into context for you. 250 million believers, Christians, suffer violence of some sort. Now, what sort of violence? Acid thrown at their faces, limbs cut off, beatings that, are, that, that marred people for life. That's the sort of violence that we're talking about. One in three Christians in the world don't have the religious freedom that you and I are enjoying this morning. I'm not talking about just the air conditioning, just the ability to have the word of God preached for them to sit and listen to the word of God. They don't have that freedom. In Somalia, a converted Christian can be killed. This this is amazing. A converted Christian can be killed by his... His, his or hers family member without any fear of persecution from the authorities. Do you understand that? There's a dead body 
on the front veranda and the police turn up ready to arrest whoever it was and the family member says, she became a Christian last week so I killed her. Oh, no worries. Well, that's good. And away they go. That's what it means, brothers and sisters. That's what it means. That's trouble. Huh? That's trouble. What about in Afghanistan? Afghanistan's a mainly a Muslim country. Not many conversions. You know why? <laughs> because in Afghanistan, you, you get real death threats and most Christians are assassinated. That's why there are not many Christians in Afghanistan. And in North Korea, in North Korea, if there is a Bible in the house... So some little North Korean person realises their need of a saviour and they accept Jesus Christ and they have a Bible. I don't know where they would have got it from, but they have a Bible and they bring it home. If that Bible is found in the home, the whole household, doesn't matter if they're not Christians, but the whole family, concentration camp. I don't know what happens there or how long they stay, but that's what the report says. What trouble have you and I experienced recently because of our faith? You might say, oh, Raph, but we live in the lucky country. (laughs) Lucky country. I think it's more of a case that we are not only in the world, but perhaps we're living like we're of the world too. Something my father-in-law used to talk to me about. Trouble will come and find us. We don't have to go out and look for it. The Lord isn't saying to go out there and and stir up trouble. He's asking you to be Christ out there. And trouble will find you. If we live out Christ in us, can I have the next slide, please? Trouble will find us. But the very last bit in that upper course, in that upper room discourse is this. He says, take heart. That's a poor translation as well. In the King James says, be of good cheer, you know, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have defeated the world and Satan and death. We're on the victor side. Brothers and sisters, usually when I talk to people, I say, I hope you have a good week this week. I'm changing that from this morning. I hope you have trouble this week. I really do. May the Lord bless.